Hey everyone, Ben here, Bees with Ben, uh, podcast number two. Now I'm super excited, I've got Rob Waddell from Grand Ridge Propagation Nursery. Now I met Rob a couple of years ago at a, uh, a meeting and it was really, really cool to see everything got to do with Manuka. Now the way I see it, Rob is the Manuka guru because the way obviously Manuka comes from, comes from the plants these leptospermum plants, and we are here to learn all about it. So thanks uh, for coming in uh, and uh, having a chat with us, Rob. Yeah, no worries, Ben. Thanks for having us along. Yeah, no, awesome. So um, so obviously Propagation Nursery, um, tell us, I guess, your story. How did you get into it and how long you've been doing it for and you know, how many different species uh, are you propagating at the moment? Yeah, sure. Uh, we've been running Grand Ridge Propagation for close to 20 years. Uh, we've probably in that time we've grown well over a million seedlings and we also offer a tree planting service and I think I've come close to planting about 250 to 300,000 seedlings over that 20 year period um, so we're pretty well drilled uh, we're a commercial operation based down near Warrigal we started off um, as a backyard type setup just grown a few plants and had grew from there so this year's production is looking at about 140,000 trees and we'll probably plant between thirty and 40,000 this season. Wow. Now, did I hear you correctly, Rob? Did you say you've grown one million different plants? That's a rough number, yeah. Rough number. In a, in a roundabout, that might be a few more, might be a few less, but it's in that vicinity. Wow. How interesting is that? And so in regards to what different species and how many species are you propagating at the moment, yeah, so we grow a pretty wide range all the way from local native grasses, which only grow to about a metre high for revegetation projects, all the way up to the tallest flowering plant in the world, the mountain ash, um, and a wide range in between there as well with the, the leptosperm and manuka as um, part of that mix. And we generally grow about 100 species every year. Wow. Okay. And so as far as the propagation, so, so how do you do that, Rob? So obviously, I'm guessing, you know, they all come from seed, but how do you go about actually how does it all happen how, how do you create say these um say mountain ash or or manuka species you know, how do you how do you do that uh well some of the seeds we buy in from um, commercial seed companies or from local seed banks depending on what they are um we propagate the propagation in igloos which are little plastic hothouses uh we get them started in there uh, some seeds take a couple of weeks to germinate others take months depending on the species and sometimes it doesn't always work. Um, that's part of the fun and games of living with, uh, working with a biological um, element in your livelihood. Um, yeah, so we start them off in the in the hot houses and we get them germinated. And then we transplant them out one by one into individual cells or tubes, because we only grow little seedlings. And from there on, they go for about two weeks in the, a hot house again, and then they're outside for the rest of their life. So uh, most of the stuff takes about six to nine months to get ready for sale, and then they're off and running in, in the ground. Wow. How so it all happens around pretty quick. Well, how fascinating. And regards to, you said there's some, you know, some various reasons why something doesn't take off or propagate. Is there one particular species that you find really hard to work with? Uh, some of the local indigenous species can be pretty hit and miss. Um, they, it's the general um, germination and the viability of the seed can be very low. Um, whereas other species like the grasses, you just take a pinch out of them of the seed and put them in the pot, and a few weeks later you've got a plant. So yeah, various species and sometimes different seeds in different years can have different viabilities as well. So some years you get a really really good crop, 
of a certain species and other years it's just a total failure. So you can't really tell and you never really know and um, sometimes you have to do sell it a couple of times and to get it and sometimes it doesn't work at all. But, you know, obviously to get 140,000 plants on the ground in one season, you've got to have a fair bit of success. So most of it does work, thankfully. Wow, how, how fascinating. And so when something doesn't work, like what sort of environmental factors is it sort of the you sort of mentioned about the viability of the seeds but is there any other factors because Simeon on sort of episode one was talking about the bees are responding to various nectars and things from plants got to do with the moon so the, the regards to the moon cycle do you see you know the moon cycle having an influence on germination of, of any species uh, not greatly uh, it'd be more to do with heat um, sometimes in these smoke, um, some of the Australian species require um, burning and a bushfire to get them germinating properly. So you can add a bit of a smoke element to it to get them going in that respect. But yeah, probably not so much the moon cycle. It's more about moisture, um, reliability of warmth, being the main factors, as well as the viability of the seeds. Sometimes these um, the germination rates aren't very good. And as far as you just mentioned smoke. Obviously, we give smoke to our bees to get them all relaxed. So, the, the smoke do you do you is that an artificial smoke? Do you light a, a bee smoker and 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 do that to any of the seeds? Um, not so much as a bee smoker, but you know, a little bit of ash put through the the, the seed mix can help stimulate the um, the plants to germinate a bit better. So, some of the you know sort of colonising species, which are more bushfire dependent, um, they respond pretty well to that stuff like banksias. Um, they can happen pretty well with uh, a bit of smoke through them. So, yeah, that's sort of how it works. It's not uh, smoke as such. It's more the ash okay. component of it. Okay, and so that ash is what sort of fires up that more likely to succeed in the germination? Yeah, that's right. How not with all species, just a handful of them. Okay, how interesting is that? There you go. You learn something every day, and that's what I sort of love about about talking to beekeepers and, and like yourself. And speaking of bees... Uh, you're a beekeeper. Tell us about your beekeeping journey, Rob. Uh, several years ago, um, we had a run-in with a, or a conversation with a beekeeper who suggested we should have a look into Manuka. It's going to be a bit of an industry um, down the track. Um, as a propagator, we sort of looked into that. And we got ourselves a beehive just for a bit of fun. And now we've got about half a dozen of them. who are sort of learning as we go. Um, but what the, the bee side of things has allowed me to do is to figure out from the Manuka side of things how it's going to work in an Australian environment. It's very, very different to how it works in New Zealand. Um, there's so many different environments. There's so many different microclimates, um, different plants. Um, some of the plants are really, really strong producers of nectar, so like eucalypts and capeweed and canola, plants like that. Um, so beekeeping has helped me understand how from the plant perspective, to get the nectar into the into the honey pot as the highest quality possible, um, how that's going to work by understanding how a bee works and how the, the, the hive functions. So I sort of had a bit of a two two prong effect. Um, it's been a bit of fun. Uh, it's kept some honey on our table, that's for sure, and on our friends and family. Fantastic. But it's also helped me to understand how the the business side of things works or won't work from the manuka side of things as well. Okay. Um, I'm so interested to talk lots about Manuka, but um, beekeeping, uh, one question about what's the hardest part about beekeeping for you, Rob? Plenty of time. That's time. probably the hardest bit. Yes. Um, yeah, we're pretty full, full on gas with uh, the nursery, but um, yeah, it's nice to you know chill out and just take your time when you, the time arises to just 
chill out and you know just enjoy the beehive for what it is and yeah always learning it's a fascinating thing yes that's so so true i, I couldn't agree more with you there rob and so regards to the manuka so that's something so these leptospermum uh, species in regards to your propagating and, and selling them that's come in a little bit later in the interfire as a nursery has it yeah probably in the last four years i think we've been um, involved with that sort of things so up until then, we were doing garden plants initially, and we got into sort of revegetation of the windbreaks. And the manuka side of things fits in very nicely along those because they're similar species and they're Australian species. And yeah, probably the last four years, we've probably grown about seventy or eighty thousand of them in total, maybe a hundred thousand. Wow. And and as far as these um, leptospermum, um, how many species do you uh, propagate? And you know, is there any better than others as far as when it comes to Manuka and talk us through sort of the DHA, give us that sort of um, all this information on how it becomes from a plant into uh, into Manuka. Yeah, sure. Um, so there's really not one species that fits all conditions. Um, we grow 10 species in total. Um, we sort of take in the philosophy that not every species is going to suit every condition. So if you've got a species that flowers at the same time as the main top and when for instance capeweed or canola is flowering in your area um, because they're such strong nectar sources for bees the bees will just fly over the top of your manuka plantation and head straight to the capeweed or canola so you're better off looking at a different species in that situation and that may even be uh, a species with a lower bha uh, now bha is dihydroxyacetone and that's the precursor chemical found in the nectar of certain leptospermum species, not all of them, but some. And without the DHA, you can't get methylglyoxal in the, the honey at the end product, which is what gives Manuka honey its extra kick. So we've got a range of species that start flowering around about June, July, and running through to about March. So each species flowers for about eight weeks, roughly, give or take. And you get a nice little window in there where you've got the potential to produce some good quality honey. But the, the key is to have a species that's flowering when not much else is flowering around you. So that way the bees are on the, the leptospermum. Um, they're gathering the nectar from those species almost exclusively. And you get a higher quality product at the other end. Okay, interesting. So so that, that's a really good time frame as far as having... So from June, July, right through to sort of March, um, have these um, them flowering. That is absolutely brilliant because as a beekeeper, that's what we you know, we want our bees foraging. So and getting the obviously added bonus of of having manuka. So as far as the testing side of things, so so the DHA levels. So to my understanding, and, and talk us through that, we can you can actually test the levels of the actual flower. So that nectar and get an idea as to what that MGO is going to turn out like. Is that that's correct? That's correct, yep. So the, the process is um, when the plant is flowering, um, normally after about four or five days, they start to secrete nectar. So it's not straight away. As soon as the flower opens up, there's generally no nectar in the lipto flower. So we get um, some distilled water, and we rinse out a very measured quantity of that water. We do about 10 flowers, um, rinsing the nectar off the, each individual flower and putting them into a little vial. Um, we then freeze those vials in the freezer, uh, mark the plant, GPS it if we need to, so we know we, we can find it again if we have to, um, wherever that may be in the country. 
And then we send those vials off to the University of Sunshine Coast, which is up in Queensland. Now, that's the only lab in Australia that I'm aware of that's accredited to do this um, measurements. And they come back with an analysis of the dihydroxyacetone, the DHA, and also the short content of the, the nectar. And from, from those levels, we can determine whether a plant's going to be able to produce um, a medical-grade honey or whether it's going to be a low-grade testing plant. So with, with Eucalyptospermum uh, scoparium, for instance, we've tested plants all the way from 500 DHA all the way up to 15,000 DHA. And there's no way by looking at those plants which one's going to be which. And polygalifolium we've done from about 2,000 up to about 18,000. That's been our highest testing plant so far. So there's a huge, huge variation within the species and between the species as well. Wow, interesting. And I'm guessing certain times of year, or certain years, I should say, that's going to variables there too. Like obviously at the moment, you know, uh, it's a very wet um, autumn. Like it's incredibly wet and everything's green. Even the summertime, there was... Uh, the paddocks were in many places in Victoria. They were they were green. So I'm guessing these other environmental factors would affect those DHA levels. Would that be correct, Rob? Uh, not so much the DHA levels. The DHA level is locked in with genetics. Oh, okay. So a high testing plant tested this year will still be a high testing plant next year. Um, but what does vary with the, with the climate is the nectar yield. So if it's a very very dry year with very little rainfall, especially in that um, bud set time and during flowering. The nectar yield can be very, very low, or even they can even flower what's called dry, where they don't produce much nectar at all. And that's been a bit of an issue, um, especially up in southern Queensland, northern New South Wales, the last few years, where they've been in pretty severe drought. And even though the, the DHA levels will be still be the same in the, the plants, um, because there's been no nectar, there hasn't been much um, honey produced in, in some sites. Uh, so hopefully with a bit of rain around the countryside, the plants will be all nourished and um, a bit healthier and happier, so they'll be able to produce some nectar for um, the beekeepers this year. That'd be great. Interesting. Um, Southern Victoria hasn't been so bad. Interesting. And as far as the actual um, the manuka, so uh, talk us through that. You know, what what's your understanding of manuka uh, on a, on a medical type uh, level? Have you seen sort of the testings and so forth with that? Um, I'll sort of refer to the medical practitioners and the scientists on this one. Um, I'm neither of those things. I'm a plant grower. Um, but from what the scientists have told me and from various medical practitioners, even veterinary practitioners that I've spoken to, um, the, the MGO in the Manuka honey does give it an extra kick as far as antibacterial goes. So um, a regular honey still has loads and loads of antibacterial properties and we're all very familiar with that. But when the MGO is incorporated from the leptospermum plants, the antibacterial properties are so much stronger. And at the medical levels, there's a lot of antibacterial um, resistance, antibiotic resistance in hospitals, uh, especially around bugs called golden staph, which are referred to as superbugs. And on a, a skin and topical level, the leptospermum honey, if it's of right grade, it's sort of above 300 MGO or higher, um, that honey can actually destroy golden staphylococcus. It's one of the few things that can do it. And there's been tests done where they've tried to actually generate resistance to this honey, but because there's so much uh, generate resistance to the golden staph in labs to the honey, but because there's so many different things going on in honey as a natural product, 
Um, they haven't yet been able to develop a lab-induced um, antibacterial resistance to manuka honey, which is actually really interesting. Okay. That's absolutely absolutely fascinating. And so with this whole, obviously, a little bit in, coming out of New Zealand, this manuka madness, uh, so to speak. And, and, well, there you go, manuka. That's, um, what, what's your take on that? You know, are we because there's a bit of fighting like the cricket and the rugby and so forth between uh, us and the Kiwis. Do you think we should call it a uh, manuka uh, as well? Because they're trying to change that. What do you know about that, Rob? Um, it's really very difficult to tell. Um, the manuka plant originated in Tasmania and drifted over to New Zealand several thousand years ago, found an ecological niche and took off um, with you know Maori traditional practices. And so, therefore, it's very, very well established in New Zealand as a plant. And the Kiwis actually discovered that the MGO was the active ingredient in manuka honey that gave it that extra kick. Um, but the, genetically, the plants are identical on either side of the ditch. Okay. So, Leptospermus caparium in Australia and New Zealand is basically the same. There's a few different subspecies, of course, um, due to genetic variation. But the, the honey is exactly the same. So whether it's off Leptospermum polygalifolium, uh, Scaparium, or one of the other species, then there's a little bit of variation, but the active ingredient is identical. And I think the researchers at University of Sunshine Coast have found DHA in about 40 species thereabouts of the 80 odd Australian species. So it's we don't know why it's there, um, the DHA, but it's very beneficial to humans if it's in the right level and produces honey. Um, whether we should use the name Manuka. I suppose that's up to the lawyers, but um, the plant is called Manuka in Australia. It's been called Manuka in Australia since the 1800s, and that's a fairly long time. It's, only, it's more a bit of a, a trade battle more than anything else. Um, obviously, the, the Kiwis have done a very good job in promoting Manuka honey as their you know, gold-plated um, product. Yes. And the fact that Australia has got some very, very active species is obviously a threat to their marketing. And I think that's more where it lies rather than the, the cultural ties from um, the name Manuka. Interesting. And so that's been sort of all still, the battle continues, Rob, is that correct? Is that still going to be a battling or something we're going to, it's going to, they're going to let it go and, or just something they'll continue to fight it? Because uh, obviously to my uh to my knowledge, you know, we we call uh, manuka an Aussie word for it is uh, jelly bush honey, and jelly bush honey just doesn't have the same ring, does it? It's not quite as elegant, is it? Um, I suppose all the marketing's already been done around manuka as well. So that, in that respect, it's you know, the the marketing side of things is already looked after. The brand's recognised internationally, so the job's done in that respect. Yes, but yeah, as far as I'm aware, it's still in court. Um, there's been a few trademarks placed around the world by the New Zealand Manuka organisation and the Australians are fighting those trademark names. Uh, where it's at at the moment, I'm not exactly sure, but I'm sure there's some lawyers making some decent wages out of what's going on between <laughs> yes. these, these couple of countries. <laughs> that is I've got so no true. doubt about that whatsoever. <laughs> that, that, is, uh, that is very true. And uh, yeah, let's say someone wanting to produce uh, Manuka honey at home, they've got, say, one, two, ten beehives. Uh, how many would we need to, uh, let's say the Leptosperm scoparium, how many of these trees would we need to plant in order to get a yield? Is there sort of an equation there to do, Rob? Like what, sort, what would be like an acres, hectares? What would, what would you sort of recommend, you know, someone on, yeah, a, sure. commercial, on a commercial level or, or a hobbyist level even? 
Yep, running off um, New Zealand data. They've been running the Manuka plantations for probably 10, 15 years, so they've got a fair jump on us. Um, some of the Australian species have still been trialled and tested. So if we work on New Zealand data, um, planting spacing of three metres apart um, within the rows and three metres between the rows gives a, a planting density of 1,150 plants per hectare. So a hectare is 100 metres by 100 metres or two and a half acres in the old school. So at 1,150 plants per hectare, the Kiwis have worked out over time that between, on average, two hives can be run on that as a plantation. Um, in As they get more mature, it can be near up to three or four, depending on the genetics and the location, because the soil and the climate has a big effect on that as well. Um, in the wild, on the wild you know, bush sites, uh, they work on a ratio of about one hive per hectare. Um, now, finding information on the Australian species is a little bit tricky. Um, manuka honey, because it's so valuable, is uh, sort of kept very, very secretly, and no one really tells you much about sites and all that kind of stuff. But if you work off that New Zealand data, um, if you plant out about a hectare, you should be able to run a couple of hives on that as a plantation setup. Now, one of the advantages of having a plantation is that if it's done right, the genetics should already be tested. So you can buy lots of scaparium plants or whatever off the internet and buy seeds off the internet. There's no problem there whatsoever. It's very easy to do. But there's only about four nurseries in Australia that have actually gone to the trouble of testing these plants to produce them as high-grade medical plants. And obviously we're one of those. So if you're looking to produce manuka honey, um, the premium end is in the medical grade, so above 300 MGO. You need the plant testing as high as you can in DHA levels. And if you don't know what those DHA levels, you've got, you've really got no chance of producing a quality product and you won't know for several, several years down the track. So yeah, probably one hectare is the bare, bare minimum. But if you're going to have a small plantation like that, you really need to find a species that fits in your local area when there's nothing else flowering around it. Bees have a radius of about three kilometres from the hive where they fly. So if you can have that hectare of plants, that 100 metres by 100 metres as the prime source of nectar at that period, um, that's the best chance for you to produce a, a high-quality product. Uh, beyond that, you're looking uh, at sort of 100 hectares plus to produce uh, a, on scale for large quantities of honey production. But for a backyarder, uh, well, not so much a backyarder, but a small landholder, uh, one hectare would be the minimum. Okay, so one hectare. So... And so, so that's actually a reasonable investment because um, I know how much you sell these plants for, but tell us how much you sell a, a, um, a high-grade manuka plant for. Uh, the, the, we run on volume basis. So for less than 1,000 plants, we sell them for $1.75. That's including GST. For 1,000 to 5,000, they're $1.50. And for above 5,000, we're looking at $1.25, including GST. So to set yourself up for a hectare, um, if you're looking at a, a dollar fifty a plant, that's fifteen hundred dollars to get your hectare of plants in the ground. Um, you'll have to do all the planting, of course, um, if you want to keep the cost of that level. But if you want us to come and plant them, there's extra charges and costs on top of that. Um, watering is another issue, especially in dry summers, which we've had a few of lately. So you want to make sure during those establishment periods that the water is kept up to those young seedlings, especially in those first few years. So if you're lucky enough to have some good summer rainfall like we had this year, the watering would have been very, very low. But um, the establishment would have been very, very good quality because uh, the water fell from the sky and didn't have to be put on by the, by the water tank. 
Wow. And and just so everyone heard that, that was correct. So a dollar, if you're buying under a thousand, that's a dollar seventy five per plant. That is absolutely that's, right. that's amazing. That's uh, as an investment. That, that we can see some great potential. So, and where do you speak of in the potential in the, the industry as far as Manuka in Australia? Where do, where do you see it in the next sort of five, 10 years, Rob? Uh, it, yeah, I don't think there's any trouble selling the honey. Um, no problem whatsoever. There's multiple players out there that are looking um, very aggressively at getting into the Manuka game. So, as far as selling to packers, uh, there's plenty of demand there. But the, because the brand is so well recognised, there's also a potential for smaller players to um, do their own production, um, their own marketing, their own packaging, their own selling um, direct to the consumer. And for a smaller player, that's where the real potential lies because you can take that middleman's margin and the, the end player's margin as well and keep that for yourself. Wow. And um, at, the, at the B conference a couple of years ago, um, I managed to talk to one of the Convita blokes who's the, the Convita is the major Manuka medicinal honey producer in New Zealand and I asked him if there was any any issues with selling the honey and whether the potential of the product is limited by by demand factors um, he just gave me a little chuckle and said no chance so that's coming from the, the horse's mouth if you like yeah wow how there you go and as far as obviously can't tell us where but but what's the biggest plantation you've been involved with Rob uh, at this stage, mainly trial ones. Yep. So a few hectares will be this, um, most of them at the moment. Um, there's lots of them looking to scale up from that. But we always suggest that people try a species uh, or mix a species initially to um, see which one's going to work best for them. So, because it doesn't always work out in practice what aligns with theory. So there can be some species that in theory should match up perfectly with your site and the conditions, but sometimes for some reason there might be a little bug out there or the soil might not quite work. So, um, yeah, a mix of species initially, and, yeah, you ramp it up from there. So, you know, we've sent plants to Queensland, New South Wales, the Northern Territory, Victoria, um, and most of those have been on a, a smaller scale, you know, two, three, four thousand, um, as well as lots of little, little ones in amongst that, just as test runs. And some of those people are looking to ramp up the numbers in the, the coming years. Um, cash flow is obviously an issue as well. Uh, not everyone's got 100 grand sitting in their back pocket. But, um, yeah, there are some, some larger players sitting in the background as well. Wow. And, and what about you sort of um, touch base then on um, any bugs? And so what, what, I guess, pests and diseases can affect? Are they easy to grow? Um, say Manuka, Scoparium. Do they get many like, fungal problems or... Any bugs come and attack them? Uh, there's probably only one major caterpillar that seems to attack them, and that's one called a webbing caterpillar. That can be quite an annoying little plant. Generally not very um, adverse as the plants mature, but when they're really little, um, a, a caterpillar invasion can be um, a little bit detrimental to them and slow them down and in some cases even kill them. Um, that's the main one. As far as fungal goes, if, as long as the plants are out in the open and there's plenty of air circulation and plenty of sunlight, they generally don't have any fungal problems at all. So overall, they're, they're reasonably resilient. And once they're established to a decent size, they don't really have any major issues with them. Okay. And so some of the different species would be suited for a better climate, i.e., say, say Queensland for um, for one particular species and down here or they're pretty resilient they'll go all through sort of the um, all through Australia 
No, uh, you couldn't pin it down to one in particular species that can go anywhere. Okay. Um, Polygallifolium is one that's sort of fairly widespread. It runs from um, right up into Queensland down to the New South Wales border of Victoria. So it's a pretty versatile plant. Um, but in the really, really cold climates, it may not be a very good nectar yielder because it just needs that extra bit of temperature to, to yield nectar. Whereas some of the colder climate species like Stepharium and Lanigerum might be better suited to the colder climates. Um, whereas there's a couple other species, Leptospermum and Brachyandrum is one we've tested to about 13,000 DHA. Uh, that's a particularly drought tolerant species and has a very, very deep root system so I can tap into lower um, levels of water further down in the soil profile. And that's a, a species that holds a lot of promise for hot and dry climates. Uh, Leptospermum petersonii is another good one. Uh, that's probably my preferred species recommendation for southern Victoria in particular because it flowers after Christmas. So Brachyandrum is a little bit the same, but petersonii is a, a, a tried and tested garden plant, believe it or not, in Victoria. grows pretty much anywhere. And we've tested that one to about 10,000 DHA. But the beauty of Petersonia as it flowers long after all the ground floor is gone. So it almost has a clean slate when it's flowering to produce a, a high-grade um, manuka honey when not much else is happening. Okay, and that's the Petersonia? Yeah, lemon-scented tea tree. Okay, okay, there we go. Do you think uh, in the future you're going to have one named after you if they're sort of discovered or created? Um, like, will they, will they, can you hybridise them? It's an interesting question. Yeah, there's a, a couple of unis up in Western Australia in particular looking to hybridise them. Um, you'd have to find species that flower at the same time to be able to swap the pollen over with the, and, uh, with the uh, what do you call it, the reproduction side of things. But most of the species we're doing at the moment are, are straight breads. So they're basically out of the bush or there's a couple we've got out of gardens that are tested pretty high. Um, we're doing those ones mainly by cutting. Um, but there, there is potential to hybridise them. But the Australian bush species are testing up pretty well. Wow, that's um, it's just so fascinating, so much to to learn, and I find it absolutely incredible. And you're doing a fantastic job of what you're doing, Rob. So, so I guess my um, just sort of uh, finalising it all up for tonight is um, knowing what you know now. If you go back in time, what would you do different regards to, I guess, either your business or how you do things? What would you do different? Oh, there's a big question. Um, I don't know the answer to that one, Ben. Just off the top of the head. Well, it's sort of just evolved as time's gone on. Um, business changes, tads change, you know, conditions change. So you just got to keep moving with the, the different marketplaces as they come and go. Um, so what we are doing 10 years ago is almost irrelevant to what we're doing now. And you know, I'm sort of seeing some potential for fodder crops as well, fodder plants, or, you know, Bush and tree lucerne and plants like that as well um, down the track with the leptospermum side of things. I think we got in fairly early. There might have been a couple of nurseries that were ahead of us you know, for about 12 months, but we've managed to um, make up some pretty good ground in that respect. It wasn't much earlier we could have got into the leptospermum side of things. Um, yeah, I think as far as business goes, just keep looking for what's coming up and what's going to be changing. Um, keep your, your cost structure as low as you can. You know, whether you're running a nursery or you're running a bee business, um, you can't always affect what's going to come in from outside as far as income goes, but you can affect what the 
the running costs of the business are. So try to keep things fairly lean, um, make hay when the sun shines. That's uh, that's absolutely great advice. And and anyone looking to get into manuka or see any of the other species that you uh, that you propagate, where, where how do they find you there, Rob? Uh, probably the initial contact point is our website, which is grandridgenursery.com. Uh, we also run a Facebook page, Grand Ridge Propagation Nursery, or you can just give me a bell. Um, just look up Grand Ridge Nursery on the on the web, and my mobile number will be there somewhere. It's very easy to contact. Uh, email. Yeah, there's plenty of ways to get in touch. Awesome. Well, that, that's absolutely fantastic. So I just want a big, uh, big thank you, Rob, for coming on and and letting us know all about the wonderful world of uh, what you do, propagating manuka plants. So thank you so much for your time, Rob. No worries. Thank you very much, Ben, for the opportunity. And best of luck, beekeepers. Have fun. Fantastic. Thank you.